Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So Robert, picking up our first subject, maybe we can talk about the, the US debt ceiling, which um, I'm sure all of us know uh, dates back to 1917, I believe. It's the first time the US government, or I guess it wasn't the government, it was the Congress, decided there should be a cap on spending. Uh, and it's been around and since then. Uh, and I suppose the fact that it has such a long history, sh- should we see this as just something that's a bit theoretical, uh, getting the debt ceiling raised, or is it more practical? I think it, it, it is a tail risk, but the tail risk is practical and real. So the real risk is the US defaults, and it sets off a chain of events that are not really positive for the markets. The risk is of that accident. So the, the US is not in a position where it should default on its debt. But given this rather convoluted and slightly weird political setup, which isn't shared around the rest of the world broadly, there is this risk that suddenly there is this technical default and the US doesn't meet some of its obligations in the near term. And that leads to a series of of negative consequences. So the risk is real. And given where we are in the state of the, the markets and the economies where really the US is slowing, if not in recession at the moment, certainly manufacturing sector is pretty slowing pretty rapidly. And there there is evidence of more broadly slowing in the economy. A shock to the system where the the risk-free assets for the world suddenly uh, inject this element of risk, there are sort of negative consequences that are possible. So it isn't theoretical. Having said that, the risk should be very low. But that's the hope of everyone is each time we always muddle through and we get to a deal in the end. But it just takes the one time for it not to happen where where we face big problems. And I think also the other big backdrop is the fiscal situation for the US longer term is pretty dire. So the fact that we have this situation where really the economy is going pretty well and there's low unemployment, and yet we've got these pretty large deficits and growing deficits, the cyclical position, fiscal position looks pretty bad. And the long-term position, when you include entitlements, looks, looks extremely worrisome. So when you've got that long-run risk um, and people are worried anyway about the US position, why would you risk your the stability uh, at a time like this when already, as we said, slowing growth and concerns about the banking system? It, it would certainly be an unenforced uh, error, but it is a real risk for markets. And we see how markets react in the past with debt ceilings. Quickly, if I could just pop in there, just, just to pop back a bit. So, you know, when we do look at U.S. indebtedness and uh, government spending and projected government spending in the U.S. It is pretty 
pretty worrisome. How do you feel this is different to the 90s? I remember in the 1990s when, you know, President Clinton took over and okay, he pivoted on his uh, on his agenda when he lost control of uh, Congress in his first midterms. At one point, following savings and loan, there was this, and the debts arose from that, there was this fear that the US was set on this path of sort of debt unsustainability. Uh, and yet by the end of his mandate, you know, he was he was paying down the national debt. Do you think it looks qualitatively different this time around? I think the short answer is definitely things things have progressively got worse since the 90s. So yes, the Clinton was able to reach a cyclically adjusted fiscal surplus from the deficit being around 4%. Each time there's a recovery, a tech boom, we got that recovery and the, the, the fiscal balance improved. But then when we had the GFC when the improvement came, we didn't get into a fiscal surplus. We still had a deficit of 2% from a lower lower low. So whereas in the 90s, the, the deficit was around 4%. As we went into the GFC, the deficit was about 8%. When we went into COVID, we saw the deficit ballooned to about 12 to 13%. And now the recovery phase such that it is, is we, we've only got back up to about a, a deficit of 4%. So the graph, if, if you think, is a downward sloping graph. And when we look at the overall, um, so that's thinking about the deficit, when we look at the actual sort of cumulative effect and the fiscal outlook, debt to GDP across all different classes, so not just public debt, private debt, We've gone from, uh, in the 1990s, debt was around 60%, total balance, about 120% of debt to GDP. So it, it is a worse position. And the outlook, even more scarily, when we, we think about uh, sort of federal spending, today, when we think about Medicare, Medicaid, and all those other subsidies put in, Social Security combined, all those entitlements, Again, much bigger than in the 90s. We're sort of around, I think it's 12%, 13%. But it's projected to get up to about 24% of GDP towards the end of the, the century by about 2080. Just a straight line going up. So yes, you can certainly have improvements. But the position is a deteriorating um, effect. So I think it is, it, it is different. It's getting worse. And we do need to do something to turn it around. Now, it's not going to be turned around in one go, but you certainly don't help yourself by uh, sort of undermining the faith in, in the US ability to pay their debts. Yeah, it's one of the ironies that, that of course, if, if the worst was to happen, it would drive up US borrowing costs for a long, long time in the future and make financing this deficit ever harder. But but I guess we, we, we sort of know that. So it doesn't have to happen. It may happen. There is a longer-term problem. The short-term one is the debt ceiling and the negotiations to try to have that increased. What's that been doing to U.S. stocks? Well, this is the, the, the very difficult thing. I have to. We always have to reiterate when we make these short-term forecasts. Short-term movements in stock prices. You can give lots of explanations, but often most of it is noise. And I think even more so, I would say at the moment, because the market really has been range-bound for a year. So there's lots of noise, lots of events going on. But really, we're not, we've not seen a big popular trend in, in, in either direction. So, yes, you could say it's a headwind, but actually some stocks are going up while some stocks are going down. I think that's – so I would say, actually, such as it is, the risk about the, the debt ceiling is not really affecting the stock market, I don't think, directly that much. It's had an impact on things like the US CDS. So protecting yourself against defaults clearly gone up. And we've seen some weird moves between one-month and three-month treasuries. But really, I don't think had a big – big impact in in um, 
in US stocks. I think the bigger story of US stocks really is under the surface, although I've said we're in that range and it feels really positive this year, the story is really this big bifurcation. The, the eight top stocks have really given all the gains, certainly in the last six weeks, all the gains. And the rest of the stocks are basically flat or down, depending on the day of the week you look at it. So, And that really is the story of actually maybe economic weakness and people are a bit nervous, but there's this hope that actually AI can give us the positive growth. So I think that is a bigger story at the moment than the, than the debt ceiling directly. I think the risk is if you suddenly default, then we would have a sell-off. And that's what we saw. Again, the risk of sell-off going up, you started to see these big movements down in markets like in 2011. Even then, we weren't into a recession, but that was enough to get a almost a 20% decline in the S&P. And we're, we're nowhere near that at the moment. So maybe we should turn to to corporate earnings, uh, because as we've we've all been uh, brought up to believe, equity markets are in the short term voting machines and in the long term weighing machines and what they weigh are earnings and real cash flow generation. You mentioned some of the ISM surveys there. Do, do we see companies starting to feel economic weakness? I think that's the mixture is looking back, I suppose the first quarter's earnings were not too bad overall. So we haven't seen a lot of the weakness leach through into backward looking results. There's been some reduction in growth, some reduction in earning, and margins are feeling a bit of the squeeze when we're thinking about the principal costs of wages going up, financing costs going up. And so we, we've seen an element to that. I think where we see more of it is in the, the forward guidance is looking worse overall. So I think against where surprises are going to be, I think the companies are guiding for lower earnings to come. So it's it's not been uniform, but so far we haven't seen all the weakness we're likely to see. Certainly when you compare the past periods of, of stress that we've seen, earnings fell off a lot more. So if it is a recession, then there's clearly further for earnings to decline in, in that situation. But so far, we haven't felt the brunt of, of the results. Where we have felt it, I suppose, again, it's been a bit of a, a dichotomy is manufacturing certainly slowing. And some sectors are feeling that more service sector, consumer spending in the US, as an example, not so much. Um, although now we're starting to see the surprises to the economic data, if not the corporate data, we're starting to see even that decline a little bit in the eurozone so it, it's a mixed bag overall but i think there's there's worse to come as and when we enter into recession perhaps we can talk a bit about what's been going on uh, within those markets so you you mentioned robert that in aggregate uh, markets actually equity markets have been range bound for quite a while if you look at them uh, in, in toto and yet within them there's been this very dramatic you know bifurcation between i guess sort of large and small to some extent growth versus value, but definitely, you know, the roaring success of the small number of uh, mega cap tech stock. I, I guess, what are your what are your reflections on that? And I suppose what lies behind that is, does this, in some ways, represent a, a buying opportunity and plays into the growth versus value discussion that we've talked a lot on here, but also into the large versus small, you mentioned, um, you know, manufacturing. So when you look at what's been going on within markets as a whole, where you've seen some stocks go up pretty dramatically and therefore others, given that the aggregate's been a range-bound trading, not having done that. Are they buys? So I suppose it's which which side of that you're looking at. Even if we compare to the, the winners of this year, and it, it is starting to suddenly go a bit parabolic. So I think so far you can explain it a little bit, but it's starting to look a little... The, the market action is people want to catch on a trend now. One only needs to look at NVIDIA, a classic example, and there, 
it's been quite a whipsaw ride. So to be clear, although the share price is up triple digit percentage points for the year, so it's really large gains, you're only sort of back to the highs of where they were before. So it's just making back. That's how extreme the loss was when we went out of the COVID bubble. And similarly, look at Google now is another example of a stock probably up. Well, it's certainly, I think, up about 40% year to date. It certainly was a few days ago. They're all triple digits. Now, yes, now 42%, 42% up. And it's suddenly, again, the line goes up almost straight line when people think actually Google have got some AI product that's pretty decent. So they release Bard and suddenly it can bounce back. But still off 10, 20% some of those large cap names from where they were before. So I think extreme moves, because we've seen extreme moves in both directions, we still haven't got evidence that we've sort of broken out yet. I suppose is now the moment to buy on the long term? Probably not, given you don't want to be buying just at this moment where we're starting to get peak enthusiasm for these names. Having said that, there is a mixture. I mean, when you see NVIDIA trade on something like certainly high 20s price to sales, and let's let that sit in, high 20s price to sales, you're pricing in extremely high good news. It does look like Cisco of the 2000s. So if I was buying NVIDIA, now's not the moment. But it may well, it's going to certainly produce a lot of chips for GPU units. So there's going to be a lot of demand for its product, but you don't really want to be buying at these levels. This this does seem like a ship that's sailing very fast and now's the moment to be a bit cautious. But on Google, 20 times earnings, even um, Microsoft's sort of high 30, 30 times earnings, it's not extremely expensive. Certainly, they're not up as bubbly as um, the stocks were dot com. So there's certainly much further they could go. I suppose the argument now is, is the whole market trying to be like George Soros? And when you see a bubble, which has got real fundamental change going on, you want to jump in early. Uh, That was his always his enthusiasm of uh, how you approach a bubble. So I think clearly it's a momentum trade, even if the long-term trend 100% is real. So AI is going to be transformative for economies. Would you be buying those stocks? Certainly, you'd do it in a risk-controlled way, a small part of the portfolio. I think overall being cautious, when markets get this narrow, is a moment really to be cautious. Because if there are only a few leaders keeping the market up, that's when you should really actually worry. I mean, history would say in the 2000s, that's exactly what happened with the dot-com bubble, is when it was just those few market leaders keeping the market up, that was just when it, the bull market was on its last last leg. So who knows how long it can be sustained. Certainly with ample liquidity, bubbles can be pushed higher, but it's not a value, a super value trade at this moment in time. I think there'll be a better moment to buy AI stocks overall. And if you're going to do it in a risk control way, But having said that, within the US market, even average stocks look expensive, but deep value stocks are really cheap. So I think that is why the market is a bit changed. So the difference between really cheap stocks, so the lowest quintile of stocks and the highest quintile are pretty wide because you've got overpricing on one end, not as extreme as it was, but it's still quite extreme. So it could go higher. But on the low end, that actually you've got some stocks which really do look cheap. So although overall we're saying be cautious short term, that is a big market opportunity, the difference between value and growth. So I think there, there's opportunity both to be buying that spread now, to be buying some of those deep value stocks uh, in a prudent way over time, 
and maybe waiting a bit of time to really put in your long-term growth trades on, on AI. And if you do want to sort of err and add some momentum uh, stocks, uh, if the bubble can go further, really do it cautiously and in a risk-controlled way. I think that's the biggest buy-beware comment. When you say risk-controlled in that context, there we have you know a small number of stocks making all the running. So you know the world is handing you sort of concentration problem, which is coterminous with with risk, just existentially. What does risk management look like when the usual tools you would apply, which is essentially about diversification and, you know, modest position sizing, how do you apply that when you've only got a small number of stocks that are actually doing all the heavy lifting? Well, I think firstly, position size, as you said, is crucial. So don't put all your equity portfolio in those large few names uh, would be the first thing. If you're going to add, certainly add now, do it with a small amount of money and size so that you can absorb the potential downside that that, that could happen in, in short order. So I think that's the first point. Position sizing is your friend. Do protect against these big retracements. And why do I say that is because although they may be the winners and most likely will, they're making all the running in the large language models, that might not be where the money's made in the end. Those models may become commoditized. And their business models themselves may get disrupted. I think it's only it's worth mentioning again when you look at the top ten stocks each decade. If you look at who are the winners that decade, every single decade in the U.S., the winners at the top ten market cap largest stocks at the beginning of the decade underperformed the S and P the following ten years. So they weren't the overall winners. And so then maybe it's you buy the S&P rather than just the handful of stocks because you don't know who the winners are going to be. And there's lots of ways, not only disruption from other competitors, and that's often the case is the innovator's dilemma, the disruption comes from elsewhere. Or it could be the case that we see more push from regulation to try and clamp down some of these profit margins. So that's why I'd say if you're sizing just on a handful of stocks, really be careful. Don't size them too large. And there's plenty of ways to diversify in this market, as we mentioned. Lots of the market, lots of the world looks cheap. Even a year like now, Japanese stocks, as we mentioned before, cheap area, actually are doing pretty well at the start of the year. So you can diversify around the rest of the world. And again, diversification is your friend overall over the long run. So I, I think that's one point. And if you are going to, uh, again, uh, what's another risk control way to do it? Maybe you do it in a, using options as a way to guarantee and, and limit your downside. Going long options, not selling options in this case. Now, the options are extremely expensive. But if you can make sure that when you play momentum, you're, you're protecting against that big whipsaw, that's the biggest thing you can do to protect yourself. Even a great investor like Stanley Druckenmiller freely admits he got caught both ways by feeling he was missing out. He made some money in the dot-com period, got drawn back in just at the top of the market, lost a load of money. Now, he with his successful trading, he was able to make it back by the end of the year going long bonds. But even the best investors can get caught in when when you feel like you're missing out. So and we are in that period now, we're just going into it where everybody is, is going in one direction. So it can be painful to go the other direction. So that you either can do it, control your emotions and be happy and willing to wait out the long run. Or if you're going to err and add a bit into those momentum trades, do it in some of the ways we mentioned, controlling position size, protecting his options, or using active managers as well as another way to, to sort of outsource it and, and diversifying your, your bets more widely. And I think stepping back from 
the immediate to a theme that uh, we've talked a lot about on this over the over the months and years is the distinction between uh, what is a good business and what is a good investment. But I think even more profoundly, what is good for an economy and what ends up being good for a particular company or set of companies. And I think of some of the great booms of history. I think going back, if you're a Brit to the 19th century and the railway mania with private capital, we built, well, our ancestors built railways across the UK and nobody made any money. It was the most massive destruction of private capital that we'd seen for, I think, at that point ever. And I think it lives on when you measure it in terms of GDP, percentage of GDP. It was a massive bust. And yet, and yet, it unlocked huge amounts of growth in the economy. So the economy survived the bust, even if the individual capital owners didn't. And more recently, you think of the huge sums of money paid by mobile phone companies for Spectrum and the way in which the phone companies built digital networks around the big cities of the world and yet didn't make any money. And I suppose that's a bit of a reflection on on AI, which is it can be very, very powerful, very, very benign for economies and it can just drive up productivity all round and not necessarily leave the rent or the surplus in the pace that you expect. So I think one of the thoughts, Robert, isn't it, is if, if AI succeeds, it won't necessarily be concentrated in a small number of companies. It could well transform the economics of many, many businesses. Yeah, I think, I think it is so uncertain. We don't know who the winners are going to be. Just think, Google, there's been a leaked document recently about that they're worried open source is developing so fast. So those big companies might not win if it's open source. It could be distributed, the profits more widely. So that certainly is a risk. I think the other risk is actually that the the profits are concentrated in a small number of uh, places and actually the productivity gains then lead to a lot of sort of social issues and social problems and maybe the answer is something like universal basic income so there's a whole range of possible outcomes and even the players who are advanced in this uh, field at the moment don't really know the answers to the questions about who's going to win so it is clearly early days but that's why I think the portfolio is protecting yourself is the right thing to do but equally, you do want some exposure, but not narrowly in, in a number of smaller bets, because you want some exposure to that winner. Because if there is an extreme outcome, you do need to protect your portfolio. The, the right tail is as important as the left tail. So yes, we might not know who the winner is, but there is a chance that you know you need a piece of it to give good long-term performance for, for a portfolio. So that it is difficult to navigate, but it's not enough, I think, to be sort of closing your eyes to the consequences. We need to be thinking of asking the questions, even if we don't have all the answers yet at this stage. I'd like in a moment just to move over and to talk about emerging markets. But I, I wonder if en route to emerging markets, we might just stop in Japan, where we've talked quite a lot about Japan and the opportunity there over the last, well, many months, in fact, the cheapness combined with the prospect of change. And I, I, maybe it's just me. I seem to have seen a lot of headlines in the last few days about how this time is going to be different in Japan and the Abenomics, which I guess dates back, gosh, almost 10 years, which was one of the many false dawns in post-1989 Japan, but now in 2023, finally, finally, the stars are all aligning and cheapness is, is slowly being unwound, but more importantly, there's sort of real change. Is that your feeling, Robert? Yes, I look, I think we we bought into the trend. I think looking back, the problem is you can you can have an idea at the time, but it's time it takes 
to work out whether it's true or not. Abenomics does look like it was a pretty big catalyst and was pretty important. And in many ways, we might not have observed it clearly, but since then, Japanese earnings overall has been growing as fast as the US. And by the end of this crisis, I think we'll probably have grown faster than, than the US over that period of time. So it has unlocked real change and there has been real corporate governance change. Now, clearly, shorter term, good performance. Uh, Warren Buffett famously adding, I think in 2020, and he's had really good performance in some of the, the large trading houses. So people are starting to observe, look at Japan and seeing some of the changes. And equally now, inflation ticking up is a good sign, finally in Japan. And I think the other big uh, number that's out there really is, are we going to hit where the, the price index of the Nikkei peaked all that way back in the end of the 80s? We're getting close. So there's a good chance we finally get through it. And that will be another big milestone moment when we see a lot of press. So I think the changes are real. We get the momentum sort of adding to that trend. But a couple of things, as we said, Japanese stocks are cheap. The currency is cheap, which is another good starter. There's been this corporate governance change. Japanese balance sheets are still very inefficient in a way, but also that's good in a time where you're worried about economic uncertainty and inflation. Actually, the balance sheets are pretty robust at that at that moment. So a lot of good news. And the, the change means there's a lot of ability for activists to, to unlock some, some value in Japan. So a lot of positives for Japan. Having said that, there is still the big issue that Japan's got of the, the falling population and how do you combat that? Now, AI and technology may be the answer, but it, you know, it is, it is still a main issue. When we look at how Japan's underperformed the rest of the world over that 30-year period, it correlates pretty closely to the issues they've had of what's happening on the demographic side and what's happening with their flow of, of trade. So I think, again, positive, but there are there are fundamental issues they've got to overcome. Well, we're just going to we're going to cross over and go from there to emerging markets, and I suppose, to China. And again, something that just at the moment, maybe it's just me, but just feels as though it's accelerating is the tension between China and the West. We've also the G7 meeting at the moment and the headlines that come out of that. And then the reaction to the G7 statements, reactions to G7 statements, you're in that slightly, well, I won't judge it, but it's a sort of tit for tat. I guess the question here, Robert, is is what do we need to make of this? So is this noise, uh, the fact that it's in the press and seems to have an accelerating pace, the tensions between the West and China or is its signal? Is there something more profound going on than, than we even thought was the case maybe 12 months ago? Yeah. So I think the big picture trend we talked about, this uh, emergence of a, a bipolar world and where we've seen a, a movement towards great integration, sort of turning around more deglobalization and certainly increasing tension between the US and China. This has been a, a, a trend we've talked about, others have observed. You only need to look at the trade conflicts with Trump to see that in action and what's been happening. I think when we, we look at our own position at CapGen and what, how we've looked at the situation is we were conscious of those risks, but China remained cheap. And so there were reasons to still engage and, and own China. I think what we've seen on a fundamental level is the deterioration in that political or geopolitical confrontation has been getting worse. And it's been accelerating faster than what we've anticipated, I think, over that period of time. So it's not good news for the world. It's something we don't want to happen. But when you look at the movement on the ground, it's happening and it's happening faster than we expect. You Every day there is more, more negative news in that direction. Both sides of the political aisle in the US, this is the one main area that they agree on, is you have this common enemy, 
when we're talking about it. We talk about it in the UK. I mean, amongst the G7, really, we only need to look at the communique that just came out. It's become front and centre the main issue that they're talking about. Now, there's a lot of cooperation at the G7, but in a negative direction in the sense of it's going towards, yes, it's not talking about decoupling. We're talking about slightly more moderate de-risking. But it's hard to see how if you proceed down that path, you don't get response and then other response, and it heads in a negative direction. Once you start to try and contain, it may be the new detente policy from the, the West and the US, but it, it's a policy nevertheless, which is going to get lead to this confrontation. So particularly when you think about what areas they're looking at, I think the protection over trade and the competition over AI is an example of a theme where actually the quicker that theme runs, the faster the tension may come between the two, because it is an arms race. We need to, you know, to get to who's going to succeed and win these uh, technological battles. And the tip for town actions we're seeing, the sort of the way the US has tried to hamstring China's development and uh, remove some of the uh, microchips that they need, that's had a real impact on Chinese GDP. And now China's doing some actions like suddenly we see the response in Micron share price just in the last couple of days. The actions are sort of accelerating, and G7 announced makes an announcement. China's got to make its countervailing announcement, and the issues over who's going to win AI—that's got a time limit on it. I think the issue over Taiwan actually links to to chips anyway, but that in a sense has a time limit. In 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 some ways, you can argue over, I suppose, the speed and whether who, which side benefits. Whether actually, big argument, I suppose, put forward in the Economist in the last couple of weeks. So we've seen peak China. Finally, people are now suggesting, well, maybe GDP is not going to peak as high as they thought with China, and it won't necessarily overtake the US by as much. So you've got the demographic issue of a falling working age population. But combined to that, productivity growth has started to be a bit weaker in, in China. There, there aren't so many jump ups of, uh, that they can make. The areas they're now focusing on is less um, green areas in terms of improving productivity. And if China has its moment of maximum power, maybe that's the moment you need to press forward if you want to gain control of Taiwan. So there may be a time limit in that sense. Now, people are thinking whether it was more like towards the 100-year anniversary, 2049 for China when the PLA took over. Maybe it's that anniversary, but maybe it's in the next five years. So we don't know. And I think that that's, it's an unknown risk. But unfortunately, political movement is accelerating tension at the moment. So it's hard to see that retreating. Countries in the middle are being forced to make a choice. Certainly in the West, you see Italy's decision to back out really from the uh, Belt and Road initiative. So I think Things are moving in a, in a negative direction for, for global growth and for investments across border. So I think given that heightened risk, it, it does warrant a rethink about a re-underwriting of whether your margin of safety is large enough for, for taking on board some of this unhedgeable geopolitical risk in a way. So I think compared to where we were six months ago, I think we, we're sort of requiring a bigger uh, margin for safety in this current environment. Yes, I have a, a couple of reflections on what's been. I do wonder whether President Xi might be slightly regretting the handshake with Putin, what, 15 months or so ago uh, before the invasion. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine has not at all been his friend because it's it, it's managed to create a link between uh, what's going on in Asia and what's going on in Europe. But I suppose the other one is, is, as you say, Robert, it's 
proved to be curiously unifying in the West and re- reminds us that, you know, in life, so much is relative rather than absolute. It's incredibly difficult to define yourself and unite as a nation around a positive statement of what you are, much, much easier to uh, unite and feel purposeful around what it is you're not. And history is full of great moments when a, a, a people are defined by what they stand up against. And I, I have a feeling, as you say, that that's where we're going. It's all things are pointing in the in, in a similar direction. It is one of the few unifying cross-party things in the US. Anyway, um, that's Time's Up. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>